We've been doing a series together leading up to today called The Meaning of Christmas, and that's what we want to finish out our time together in this Christmas season this year. So we have been asking the question, why did Christmas happen? A why question, not the what question. What is an easier one to handle because you simply look at the details of the events. You look at uh, what happened? There was a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. She was visited by an angel. The angel told her she would be with child, and that child would be Emmanuel, Savior, Messiah. There was a census, and they had to travel to Bethlehem, and they had to go there and be counted in that census. And when they arrived, they could not find a place to stay, and so they stayed in a stable, and the child was born, and they placed him in a manger, and Meanwhile, shepherds nearby were watching their their flock and angels visited them and said, there's something happening nearby that you should be very aware of. And they described the events and what they should do about it. So those are the answers to the what question. And most of us are familiar with that. But this year we want to ask the why question. Why did God do this? And what does it mean for us? And so we've been I'm not going to pretend to make up answers about this. I am looking to the Bible and, in fact, to one of the followers of that baby who grew up and performed his ministry and was crucified and resurrected. One of his followers was named John, and John wrote multiple documents. One is he wrote the story of the life and ministry of Jesus. It's called the Gospel of John. But then he also wrote some letters to churches, to believers. And he wrote three different letters, First uh, John, Second John, and Third John, and in there, in 1 John specifically, he gives five different reasons why the Son of God appeared. Why did God send his Son? And he answers it in five different ways. And so we're looking at that fifth and final reason given in the scriptures of why the Lord came. 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, we'll put it up on the screens. I will read it, and we'll pray, and we'll get to work. 1 John 5, verse 20, we know also... So we, John, his ministry partners, and those that he's writing to, fellow believers in Christ, he says, we know also that the Son of God has come. There's that Christmas language. God has come, and this is why. He has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, as we're gathering here this afternoon, would you please speak over us through your word, by your spirit, Lord. Help us to know the meaning of Christmas, why it is that we gather year by year and reflect on these things, Lord. Help us to think through the meaning of Christmas and let it mark us and change us for your glory. Amen. Amen. We find here three different things. So obviously the big question is, what is the meaning of Christmas? The answer is a little bit confusing but we'll unpack it as we go. The answer is God sent his son so that we might know the true God and find eternal life. Jesus came, God sent his son in order that we might know the true God and find eternal life. So three things here then, knowledge, truth, and life. Knowledge, truth, and life. God sent his son or the son of God has come to give us knowledge. Look at verse 20 again. It says, we Know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we might know him who is true. Now, I'm not talking about a body of information. This is not like going to school. It's not like, hey, there's an exam on this stuff and you need to know this information and you need to know exactly what happened so you might 
you know, replicate that information and give that, that uh, understanding there. No, this is a different way of using the word no. It's a relational way. It's saying that God sent his son so that you might be in a relationship with God himself. Knowledge as, an, as a relational term. Now, obviously, God sent his son to reveal that understanding, that, that truth, that knowledge about God. In fact, Jesus is called God's final word. One of the writers in the Bible said, God has spoken over the centuries in a variety of different ways. He's spoken through prophets. He's written stuff down. That's why we have the word. He's spoken in all these different ways. But in these last days, he gave us his final word, his son. You look to Jesus and you find out what God is like. God has come to bring that sort of knowledge and understanding of what God is like. But he has also come in this sense that we might know God relationally, that we might have access into a relationship with God himself. In fact, Jesus put it like this in John's gospel, John 14, verse 6. Jesus would describe it like this. He says, I, talking about himself, Jesus, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So God sent Jesus in order to be the way in which we might, we might have access to God. That's the reason why God sent his son, is so that we would have a relationship with God. And this, now we're touching on some high-level stuff. We're talking about the meaning of life. I was working at home last week, and I've got a home office there. My eight-year-old daughter pops in, knocks on my door, comes in, and I love interruptions from my kids uh, most of the time. Um, some of you have been working at home, you understand the frustrations, but I love it when my kids pop in and they have meetings with me. But she comes in and she says, hey, daddy, I've got a question. So I'm thinking like, she's going to ask me if she can have a granola bar or, you know, some kind of treat or something. And she knocks on my door, daddy, I've got a question. What's the meaning of life? And I'm like, you're eight years old. Like, why are you asking questions like that? And so, you know, after kind of recalibrating, going, okay, we sat down and we talked through it. And I gave her a very traditional answer, and I tried to explain it in a way that's appropriate to an eight-year-old. But the meaning of life, historically, the way that Christians have answered it is, it's to know God. It's to know God and to enjoy knowing God. In fact, there's a, there's a, a thing that was written in the 1600s. It was called a, a, the Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's a way of teaching people. You, you have a question, and then you've got your ready-made answer that matches it, and you memorize it all. And if you have all the questions and the answers memorized, you know an awful lot about God and the world he made. But the very first question goes something like this. What is the chief end of man? And I know that's old language, but that's basically saying, what's the meaning of life? And the answer that was given was to enjoy God, no, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that's essentially what I was telling my daughter that day, and that's essentially what I'm telling you today. The answer to why God sent his son was so that you might understand the true meaning of life itself. It is to know God and to enjoy knowing God. That's how Christians have answered it for centuries. J.I. Packer answers it the same way in his book, Knowing God. Michael Reeves, in his little introduction to the Christian faith called Delighting in the Trinity, will put up a, a little quote from him, but he says, Christianity is not primarily about lifestyle change. It's about knowing God. To know and grow to enjoy him is what we are saved for. You might be coming to church on a 
Christmas Eve because you're just looking for something sentimental. But what I'm here to tell you is that hopefully today you actually find out the meaning of life and the meaning of Christmas. God sent his son so that you might know God. Having a relationship with God. Well, the second thing that we find here in our text is the idea of truth. Not only did God send his son so that we might have a relationship, he sent his son so that we might know what is true. Look at verse 20 again. It says, that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God. God is concerned with truth. He wants us to know him as he really is. We don't get to kind of make it up and go, you know, God's kind of like this or that. That's a very popular notion of kind of refashioning God in our own image. God wants to be known as he is. The reason he sent his son is so that we might know truth. I love how the author and pastor Timothy Keller puts it. He says to to people who are rejecting the Christian faith, he says, describe the God that you reject. Describe the God you don't believe in because maybe I don't believe in that God either. And that's what a lot of people do. They fashion a God and they go, I don't like a God like this. Well, God sent his son Jesus so that we would not, not just have ideas about what God may or may not be like, but that we might know truth, the God who is true. So God sent his son so that we might know truth. Now let's look at, look at it from the other direction. Uh, what this implies then is that there is a way to think about God that's false. There's a way to not relate to the God who is true. And if you want to know what that looks like, it comes in the very next verse. Verse 21, we're looking at 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, but the very next verse, 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, reads like this. John goes on to make this connection. He says, dear children, so anyone who's listening to him, reading his letter, us today, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. In other words, keep yourselves from false gods. And you might go, oh, this is an easy one. I can put it on my list today and check it right off. Because aren't idols these little figurines, these little like things that are fashioned and they're made out of gold or precious metal or, or whatever, and people worship that? I mean, we don't do that. I don't do that. So obviously, this isn't an issue for me. But the truth is, idolatry is not some old idea that we've graduated from. It just manifests in a different way now. An idol is anything that says to you a promise like this, if you worship me and if you serve me, I will give you the desire of your heart. I will make you happy like you've never been happy before. I will give you, I will make all of your dreams come true. Now, when you start to define idolatry like that, you'll begin to recognize, well, you could, you could punch in almost anything. In fact, marketing really is just, I'm sorry if you're in the marketing world, but really it's just running off the playbook of idolatry. How can I convince somebody that if they were to have this product, this service, this experience, that they would be happy like never before. So happy, in fact, and so desiring of that happiness that they'd be willing to part ways with money, with resources, with, with their time, with their energy. That's what idolatry is. It's, it's very prevalent. In fact, one of the old reformers said it like this, the human heart is an idol factory. We're just pumping out these idols, things that we worship, things that we serve, listening to them saying, look, if I had that, then I'd really be happy. And John is saying, God sent his son so that you might know truth and stop worshiping and serving these false gods and come to know the one true 
and living God. Verse 20, the Son of God has come so that we might know him who is true. Do you know that God? The third thing we find here is the idea of life. God sent his son so that we might experience life. Now, first off, the way it's described here is life in him. He wants us to have a life that's bound up with the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it is confusing, so I'll try to unpack it, but look at it at the end of verse 20. We are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. We're meant to have a relationship with God that could be described as life in him. So let me try to unpack this. Eleven and a half years ago, my wife and I stood in front of family and friends, and we made vows, and we wrote our own. And one of the vows that we declared that day was that we wanted our lives to become so enmeshed that it would be hard to distinguish one from the other. So if a decision were made within you know, the, the sphere of our, our family or us, it'd be hard to say, I think Corey made that decision, or I think Ashley made that decision. And it was an aspirational goal, and it's still something that we're working on, but we want to be, just like the Bible says, two becoming one. And so closely knit together that, you know, it's hard to distinguish one from the other. That's kind of the idea that's going on here in the New Testament. God wants us to have a relationship with God that is so enmeshed with him that we say our lives are in him. Like we, everything that we do is actually in reference to God and to his son, Jesus Christ. Christianity is not something that you just add on to an already busy life. It is life. We are meant to live in him. One of the other apostles, he puts it like this, Galatians 2, 20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. That's a weird thing to say because that's an instrument of execution and, and he's writing a letter. He's very much alive, but he says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. God sent his son so that we might have that kind of life where we say, my life is in him. Everything that I do has a reference point to him. All of my decision making runs through him. My life is in him. That's what God wants for us. Many people fall very short of that ideal. They know something of Christianity. They know something of God, but they've not surrendered entirely to him. But I'm here to tell you today, this is what God wants for you, and it is an upgrade. You're not, you're not relinquishing control of your life to get something less. When you, when you consider your life to be in him, you get more, far more. He knows better than you do about your own life, and it is worth surrendering to him and entrusting your life to him. Well, it's also described here as eternal life or a life that doesn't end. He is the true God and eternal life life. You don't have to plug God in. He, he doesn't run out of life. Like this device right here is really incredible. To have a smartphone in your pocket is insane. I can, I can, I manage our church with this device. QuickBooks Online, you know, our database system, all that stuff. It's all on here. I can, I can be getting an email from someone halfway around the globe, and I can be responding to my wife who's at work today, and I can be doing all of these amazing things. The only problem is, if I forget to plug it in, this thing is a paperweight, right? It doesn't do anything for me. Not so with God. 
God doesn't need to be plugged in. He is the source of life. In fact, he's described in this way. He is eternal life. His life never ends, and he's inviting us in to that sort of life. Now, we invest in all kinds of things to try to improve our lives or protect our lives or ensure our lives, but God is just life. When you entrust yourself to him, you are plugging yourself into the unending source, being God. So while life is fragile, God is giving us this invitation to connect with the one who is eternal life. And that life then doesn't end when your heart does. That life doesn't end when your physical existence here ends. In fact, it goes on into all of eternity. And so that's one of the reasons why we as Christians, we want to tell people about this incredible news. This life is momentary. The Bible describes it like a breath. Like when you breathe out in the morning and you see that little vapor and then it's gone, that's what your life is like. But when you entrust yourself in faith to Jesus Christ and you receive eternal life, your life goes on forever. So why would you not want that? So you came to church today and we're dealing with this idea. What's the meaning of Christmas? And all of a sudden we're bumping into dude, I just came here to like see the lights and sing a couple songs. And now I'm like wrestling with why on earth am I here? Well, I'm sorry about that, but I'm also not sorry. I hope that you walk away scratching your head about this. Do I really understand why I am here? Do I really realize what God has done in the sending of his son? Is it really possible that what Cora has been talking about today is true, that I could have faith in Jesus Christ and know something of God, to have a relationship with him, and know something of truth, and be connected to life itself, a life that would go on forever? How do, how do I sign up for that? What would I do if I kind of believe that might be true? Well, John documents this in his other letter. In John chapter 17, verse 3, he describes it like this. Now, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. If you want life that I'm describing today, this is it, that you know God and Jesus Christ whom God has sent. You come to know him. You, you begin to say, he's real, and I believe in him, and I entrust myself to him. Let me give you one more verse, and it's a little more straightforward. If you're wondering, how do I become a Christian? How do I entrust myself to God? Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 10. He says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your lips, Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead, you will be saved. You can actually do that right now. You can believe that and confess that. You can just say it even under your breath. Jesus is Lord, and I believe that. And the Bible tells us that is the way of salvation. And if you're making a decision like that, please let us know. We'll throw a party. We'll join you in celebrating that reality of you coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ because God sent his son so that you might have a relationship with God, know truth as it really is, and come to know God in a saving way that results in eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, I'm asking that by your spirit today, you would be helping people move in the direction of coming to saving faith, that as they hear the sound of my voice and the message of the gospel and the reason for the sending of the Son, that they would 
consider him to be Lord and Savior. And Lord, I do pray that people would make that, that decision today, that people who are watching online or here at the tree farm, that people would make that decision to surrender their lives to Christ, to confess with their lips Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that he's been raised from the dead and is alive right now and drawing people to himself. And they therefore would have a relationship with God, an understanding of truth and eternal life. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.